1 Samuel 16, Demons, Emotions, and Music. Interesting title, isn't it? I thought about changing it, but I thought I'll leave it. <clears throat> yes, good. You know, the, the Scripture gives us doctrine and insight into all manner of human life and interaction. Some doctrines are very explicit, very clear. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. These are clear, these are specific, these are explicit, and there's really not a lot of question when it comes to them. Other doctrines are open to some level of uh, circumstance or interpretation. No less important, no less necessary, but takes more discernment, uh, takes uh, more patience, and takes more prayer to understand where we fall. Uh, As thou hast occasion, do good unto all men, especially those that are of the household of faith, the Bible tells us. Uh, Abstain from all appearance of evil, the Bible tells us. These are our commands. But how those commands work themselves out in our lives are somewhat um, different as we understand um, each of our circumstances, situations, and what the Lord has asked of us. And finally, and I might be oversimplifying here, we could probably break it into more categories and such, but uh, there are... um, there are those doctrines which are, we might say, inferential, where we see the principles of God's Word and where we see elements of... of, um, narrative in God's Word, and we draw from them principles upon which we build an understanding. And when we think about these doctrines, these doctrines are ones that that tend to be more uh, life choices and standards, and uh, they're founded on principles. We uh, talk about things about financial management and time management, and we talk about um, choices with amusements, and we cho- talk about um, choices with uh, modesty, and we talk about choices with uh, what will be a part of our topic today, music, and, and we, we recognize that in all of these cases, um, we, we look at principles from God's Word, and then we build upon them our understanding and and standards and doctrines based upon those principles of God's Word. And then we also see, uh, as you consider this title, it's not just in those areas of amusements, but when we think of the spirit realm, there's a great deal that the Bible uh, infers about the spirit realm. And then there's a great deal that we know from experience, from narrative, and then there's some things that we just don't know. And uh, demonology, angelology, uh, this is an area of doctrine that is um, somewhat ambiguous. But today, as we look into the text, we're going to see some foundational concepts of, that will help us as we seek to understand some elements of how the spirit realm works, some elements of, of what God teaches us about music in the Word of God, and interestingly enough, how the spirit realm and music interact. And we'll find that they do indeed in a real way. Now, as I, as I say this, let me of course preface it. Music is always a difficult topic, and this will just be a part of what we're talking about today, but it's always a difficult topic to, to speak on for several reasons. One of the reasons is because music is a very personal form of entertainment, um, and in doing so, it carries with it deep loyalties. Music is, as I mentioned, an inferential doctrine. Uh, you must draw from many facets of understanding and discernment, the Word of God, and practically and doctrinally in order to come to some clarity. But today... Um, we'll come to one passage that really does add some clarity to our understanding of music. Um, You are all aware that we have a particular strand of music that as a church we use. Um, Those of you who have gone through our About Legacy class, simply teaching you what we are and why we believe what we believe, uh, have more insight into why we as a corporate body have chosen the type of music that we do. But foundational to our choices of music... Um, to the doctrinal confirmation of our observational and practical standards is this passage of Scripture. Today's passage cannot stand alone 
in proving or disproving anything as it relates to music. Today's passage is not going to magically answer any questions for us, but what it will do is it will help us understand a principle as God's Word teaches us about the power of music. And as we understand the power and influence that music has, we will then draw out some basic conclusions as to what that should mean for us as believers. So, let's dig into the text today. Uh, we will look at verses 14 through 23, but I'd like us to begin contextually back at verse 13 of 1 Samuel 16. Verse 13 says this, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Remember, we talked about this last time, that the Spirit of the Lord came upon David on that day. And from that day forward, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. And we spoke specifically about the fact that this Spirit of the Lord uh, coming upon him in the same way it came upon Saul, this has nothing to do with salvation. This is not Spirit of the Lord as in indwelling unto salvation as we would think of it in the New Testament. This is the Spirit of the Lord coming upon them in order to enable them to do the ministry that God has called them to do. With Saul and with David, this ministry is being the king of this theonomy, of this nation that is led by a king who is led by the Lord, this nation of Israel. And so God gave them the divine authority and capacity by placing his spirit upon them for this ministry in the same way that, that we would see the Lord placing his spirit upon men in order to win a battle or in order in the New Testament to, to preach a sermon. As the case may be, the spirit of the Lord falls upon a man and enables a man to do what God has called him to do. Now, follow with me or continue with me in verse 14. The scriptures tell us, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now, it is not too troubling to our sensibilities to understand that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. If this Spirit of the Lord is the Spirit of the Lord that enables for ministry, then as he has been rejected as the King of Israel, it makes perfect sense that the Lord would remove from him the capacity to lead and would take that capacity to lead and to place it upon David. And so that doesn't trouble us as he has been rejected. But the point that might make us uncomfortable is that second phrase. And an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him, literally terrified him or made him frightened. Anytime evil and God are used in the same context or evil is used in a way that it seems to be derived from God, we want to be more purposed in our understanding. And we'll take a few moments this morning um, and consider what this phrase can't mean, uh, what it could mean, and how to best discern what's going on here in Saul's life. So we begin by going to James chapter 1, verse 13, which tells us this, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any Man. The concept here is that God will never solicit a man into evil choices. That God, he can't be tempted with evil because evil is defined as that which is not God. So if it's of God, then it's not evil. If it's evil, then it's not of God. But then God will not tempt any man with evil either. In other words, that he will not put man in a place where he is soliciting man to sin. He is soliciting man to make evil choices where God uh, places before us choices, um, well, what, what we do see, what we do see in the scripture, and this is a difference, is that God will tempt men in the, context, in the context of testing or proving love. He will never tempt man in the idea of soliciting him unto evil, but he will place a man in circumstances where he places before us choices gives us all the information necessary to make the correct choice, and then allows us to either make the correct choice or to make the wrong choice. And he regularly proves us, if you want to call it tempting, that's fine, proves us in this way. And we see this exemplified all the way back even to Adam and Eve, right? God placed them in a garden. 
He placed one tree in that garden. He said, do not eat of this tree. And he said, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And he, he, he placed them in this circumstance where they had the opportunity to do wrong. But God gave them every opportunity to do right as well. One tree he said no to among the who knows how many hundreds, thousands of trees that they could partake of. Only one he said no. And he didn't just say, well, Adam and Eve, there's one tree in this garden that you can't eat of. I'm not going to tell you which one, but you better not eat of it because if you do, you're in trouble. He didn't say that, did he? He said, this is the tree, Adam. Don't eat of this tree. And not only am I going to tell you don't eat of this tree, but I'll tell you what will happen the day you do. I'm giving you every bit of information at your disposal to help you make the correct choice. But it's still up to you. And this is how God tests us, proves us. If you want to say tempts us, it's our own flesh that tempts us. It's God that allows us to be in the situations where temptation can happen. But that's not the idea here that James talks about. James says that God will never tempt a man with evil. God will never put you in a situation where he is seducing you to evil, where he is inclining you to evil, where he is giving you a situation where evil is the natural and expected end. God will never do that. 1 Corinthians 10.13, we see this idea of what God won't do as far as temptation. It says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Every temptation that you're going through, it's not unique to you. We all struggle. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which ye are able, above that ye are able, excuse me, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. This is the idea that every time God places us in a situation where there's the opportunity to do wrong, He has always given us, if God has led us into that situation, then He has given us the information as well as the divine capacity to overcome. Now, we lead ourselves into situations sometimes, don't we? And that's not what God wanted for us. And there's a different ballgame there. We may not have had enough information, but we, we brought ourselves there. God didn't bring us there. But if God is going to place before us a situation that is going to stretch us, that is going to refine us, that is going to test us, He will give us every means possible to be victorious. He will give us all the information we need to be victorious. And then He'll ask us to make the choice. And that's the character of the God that we serve. So God will not seduce us into evil, nor will he try our obedience without giving us a way of escape. But that still leaves us with this concept of an evil spirit from the Lord. What does this mean? How do we reconcile this idea of an evil spirit being sourced in the Lord? And as we consider this concept, once again, we're going to go foundational. I'm just going to keep building a foundation here upon which we can formulate our thoughts. Let me tell you what we absolutely know is true. Evil spirits operate under the authority of God. We absolutely know this to be true. Therefore, any evil spirit that functions in this world is doing so only to the extent that God has allowed it to function. And we know this from many places in Scripture, but most perhaps obvious, the book of Job. We're going to spend a few moments in the book of Job. So if you would like to turn there, you may. It will be on the screen behind me as well. But if you'd like to turn to Job chapter 1, you may. In the book of Job, we have a man who has been divinely blessed and divinely protected by God. God has given him great blessing and God has protected him from evil. And the Bible says... In Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth? a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Will he fear you 
in any circumstance, Satan says. He's the great accuser, remember. Hast, thou, hast not thou made an hedge about him? Haven't you protected him, Lord? And about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Of course he's going to serve you. You've protected him from evil. He's had a great life. Things have gone well for him. Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land, but put forth thy hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. If, he, if you were to take it though, Lord, if you were to take everything that you've blessed him with, if you were to remove the protection that you've given to him, he wouldn't stick with you. He'd curse you to your face. And then verse 12 says, The Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. God places everything that Job possesses in the hand of Satan, the scriptures tell us. He says, okay, I will put my hand upon Job. In other words, I will remove from him my divine protection so that you can influence him, so that you can touch his, his circumstances, but not him, himself. You may not touch him. You may touch what he owns. You can touch what he possesses. You can touch his posterity, but you may not touch him. So God gave Satan authority, removed his hand of protection, but added to it stipulations. And that's exactly what we see happen as you continue through that text. Um, Job loses everything. He loses his camels. He loses his sheep. He loses his servants. He loses his children. Everything that he has just collapses around him. And there's nothing left. All of his children are dead. All of his livestock, everything that he has is destroyed. And the scriptures tell us at the end of Job chapter 1 that then Job arose and fell down upon the ground and rent his mantle and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so he justifies the goodness of the Lord in the midst of his suffering. He recognizes that if God gave it all to him to begin with, then it wasn't his. It was on loan from God. And if God chose to take it, God can take it away. And the name of the Lord is still to be praised. So he handles that one really well. And I'm sure that kind of bummed Satan out. And so we find in Job chapter 2, the next instance. Job chapter 2, beginning in verse 2, the scriptures tell us, And the Lord said unto Satan, as, as the sons of men present themselves again, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect man and an upright, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And still he holdeth to his uh, fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto him, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So God says, okay, Satan's accusation is this. Well, sure, he lost everything, but he's probably sitting there saying, well, I've lost everything, but at least I still have my health, right? At least I still have me. At least I'm still alive. At least I'm still healthy. Satan says, man will give everything for his life. He, he, Job, if, if it would have come down to his life or all of his possessions, he would have gladly given all of his, all of his possessions anyway for his life. But touch his life. And that's when he'll forsake you. God says, okay, you can have him, but you cannot take his life. You can touch him, you can afflict him, but he may not die. And again, we see the limit. God gave Satan more authority, but he limited Satan in his authority in the extent to which he can touch Job. Now through this, we see that this evil that afflicted Job externally, taking his cattle, taking his children, taking his health. This evil was allowed by the Lord. We could perhaps even say that it was from the Lord. Satan kind of says that, doesn't he? And God kind of says that. He's, Satan keeps saying, you touch him 
And God said in Job chapter 2, although you, Satan, moved me against Job, you brought me to a place where I was willing to move against Job. So though it's Satan that's actually doing the afflicting, it ends up coming back to God perspectively because God is the one that's allowing it. Now that does not make God the origin of the evil. That simply makes God the one who in his wisdom and in his sovereignty is allowing it to take place. And we need to be careful there because God is not the originator of evil. God is allowing evil in his sovereign plan for his sovereign purposes with sovereign limits set by him. Now, we lay down this understanding of temptation of the influence of evil by the will of God, but we recognize that even as we consider all of these foundational principles that inform us as to what's going on here in 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, it's still just a little bit different there, isn't it? In this case, the Bible says that an evil spirit from the Lord caused within Saul deep terror and trouble of mind. It's not like with Job. With Job, he still kept his his senses, he just was afflicted externally. He still had, um, spiritually, it doesn't, the scriptures don't tell us that there was anything inside him afflicting him or anything of the sort. It was an external affliction that was touching him externally and of course causing him anguish and grief. And here we, we see it described just a little bit different. If we're going to classify God's actions here, this is not a temptation. This is not tempting or proving like Adam in the garden to prove his obedience or to grow Saul in faith. God is not proving or tempting him here to grow him. It would not even be testing like the man Job to prove his love and his devotion so that he would grow more. This is not testing. This is not um, testing devotion or love or obedience or faith. Saul has already failed those tests, hasn't he? He's already failed the obedience test. He's already failed the loyalty test. He's already failed the love test, which means we are not looking at testing here. What are we looking at? We're looking at judgment. And so while we see the evil spirit of the Lord, as we consider what that means, that can come upon a man like Job for testing, as we see that the Lord can remove His hand of protection upon the lives of men in order to stretch them or grow them or prove their love, here we see divine judgment upon a man for his disobedience, for his lack of love, for his refusals. And the evil spirit of the Lord is functioning in that capacity. (coughs) Excuse me. We're looking at a situation here where the evil spirit was causing deep mental, spiritual, and emotional turmoil. And as we consider the Scriptures, we see precedent for demonic possession where a demon can physically inhabit a person and can control them. We also see precedent for demonic oppression where though a demon is not physically indwelling a man, he is deeply oppressing a man uh, from that, that standpoint of, of spiritually and emotionally deeply influencing a mind, man's spirit and mind. In Matthew 8, verse 28, we see two men possessed with devils who were very violent and had superhuman strength even. In Matthew 17, 18, we see uh, a possessed child called a lunatic, literally implying that this demon had caused him to act crazily, like a madman, to act outside of his senses, to jump into fire and to jump into water. In each of these circumstances, we see that these demons affected men's minds, affected their actions, affected even their capabilities. But when Jesus came and cast them out, they were brought back into a sound mind. They were brought back under the control of their own bodies and faculties. Now, all of these considerations lay that particular foundation that allows us to understand what we might be seeing in Saul here. It should not trouble, trouble us that the Scriptures tell us this evil spirit came from the Lord because the Scriptures reveal uh, that God is active in the processes of protecting from evil and then allowing evil to influence men. 
God has rejected Saul, and as a natural judgment of Saul's complete rejection of God, God has removed his hand of divine protection, his divine blessing, his divine leading. He has in turn opened Saul up, allowing evil spirits to afflict him and oppress him in judgment, terrifying him, leaving him in a state of jealousy, of depression, of irritableness, and of anger. And what we will find as we continue in the text and in several other passages is that these emotional and spiritual fits of anger, of depression, of confusion, of jealous rage come and go, which make the likelihood of this being a demonic issue more than just, say, an emotional or mental issue, as we call it, internal issue, uh, much more likely. Continuing in verses 15 and 16 of, of uh, 1 Samuel 16, if you turned over to Job, please turn back, as we'll be um, back in the text. In verses 15 and 16, the scriptures tell us this, And Saul's servants said unto him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God troubleth thee. They pinpointed it. Let our Lord now command thy servants, which are before thee, to seek out a man who is a cunning player on a harp, And it shall come to pass when the evil spirit from God is upon thee that he shall play with his hand and thou shalt be well. So Saul's servants quickly recognize what is going on here. They see the change in Saul. They see the mood swings. They pinpoint the fact that there's some degree of influence here from an evil spirit from the Lord. And they immediately suggest to Saul that a player of a harp, that a cunning musician would come, and when the evil spirit afflicts him, that this musician would play with the expectation that as the man would play, Saul would become well. There was no debate about this. It was understood that Saul was in trouble, that he had a very troubled spirit, and that music would would calm him. Saul agrees. Notice what he says in verse 17. Saul said unto his servants, Provide me now a man that can play well and bring him to me. In verse 18, we see this flesh out. Then answered one of the servants and said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite that is cunning in playing and a mighty valiant man and a man of war and prudent in matters and a comely person and the Lord is with him. So we get a description here of the son of Jesse, who is David, the David that we were introduced to earlier in this chapter. Remember, Saul has never heard of David. Saul is not aware that David has been anointed. And we are probably looking at a circumstance that came about in time. It's probably at least months, if not several years later than when David was anointed. So David is anointed, and recall last time we said he was probably anointed around the age between 10 and 15. Josephus said he was around 10. Most scholars believe closer to 15, and this is one of the reasons. Because in a matter of time, he's, he's called a valiant man and a man of war. And I don't know how many 15-year-olds you know, but there's not a lot of 15-year-old boys that, that could really be properly described as valiant men and men of war. They're just not quite there in their development yet. And so we're probably looking at around 16 is when a lot of these, uh, a lot of young men tend to, you know, their shoulders start to broaden and those sorts of things. And they start becoming a man physically uh, with those physical capabilities. And so we would assume at this point that he's probably somewhere between 16 and 18. And he has had a reputation now of being capable, perhaps as we'll see in the next chapter, as David speaks of him having slain a bear and slain a lion, perhaps that he's, he's derived a little bit of a reputation among certain people um, for his capacity uh, to slay animals, uh, large and violent animals, whatever the case may be. He's seen now in the eyes of some as a valiant man and a man of war. Saul still knows nothing of him. This is just one of his servants who knows him. And then in verses 19 and 20, we see Saul say, okay, send messengers to Jesse and say, uh, and get him. So the scripture tells us that Saul sent messengers unto Jesse, verse 19 and 20, and said, send me David thy son, which is with the sheep. And Jesse took an ass laden with bread and a bottle of wine and a kid and sent them by David his son unto Saul. So they take a gift, a modest gift, a gift for a family that wasn't wealthy and sends that with David and sends David to minister unto Saul. 
Saul at this point is not at all interested in who this David kid is. As a matter of fact, he probably doesn't even really know his name. He probably just said, I don't care who he is, send for him. And the servant says his name is David and they send for David and David comes and David's going to play. But we're going to find that Saul um, does not really have any care about who this guy is. It's almost, we could say, obviously we know it's sovereign and divine, but if we were looking at it from the, the, the a man's perspective, this is entirely coincidental. Entirely coincidental that David was the one that was anointed and that David is being called now to play. They, they're, they're absolutely unrelated to one another. In verses 21 through 23, this last bit, and we need to know this in order to have a consistent interpretation, this last bit is not chronological. It is summary. It is summary of the relationship that Saul will have with David. Notice what we see here. Verse 21 to 23 says, And David came to Saul and stood before him, and he, that Saul, loved him, David, greatly. And he became, that's David, became his, Saul's, armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David, I pray thee, stand before me, for he hath found favor in my sight. And it came to pass, when the evil spirit of God was upon Saul, that David took an harp and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and, and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. We're going to find in the next chapter, after David slays Goliath, that um, Saul is going to ask his, his leading man of his army, who is this kid? Who is this kid that just slew Goliath? And, and his, his uh, servant is going to say, I have no idea who he is. Whose son is he? I have no idea. And they're going to inquire and find out that his name is David, the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, and they're going to have no clue who he is. And that would be kind of strange, right? For us to read that, considering what we're reading here one chapter earlier. And that's why we know that this is summary. The, chrono the chronology of events here is that David is going to go and he's going to begin this relationship of playing for Saul. He's going to go, he's going to play, and when he's done and not needed anymore, he's going to go back to Bethlehem. And we know this because in chapter 17, when his, son, when his brothers go out to war, where is he? He's still watching the sheep, right? He's still taking care of the sheep in Bethlehem. And then he's going to go and he's going to become a part of that battle and he's going to uh, slay Goliath. Now, if he were the king's armor bearer at that point, he wouldn't be watching the sheep, would he? In a battle, he'd be with Saul bearing his armor. But he, he wasn't there. And he wasn't there because he wasn't yet his armor bearer. So this is, these three verses are summary verses that tell us the breadth of the relationship between David and Saul and how it's going to develop. So he's going to play, he's going to go back to Bethlehem, and that's going to happen for a while. And then there's going to be this war, and David's going to stay home, and his brothers are going to go. And then David's going to be called up, and coincidentally, it's the same David that happened to play all this music. David's going to tell Saul, I can do this, I can fight this man through the power of the Lord. Saul's going to say, okay, I don't know who you are, here, take my armor. And David's going to say, I haven't proven this armor yet, so I'm not going to use it. He goes, he slays Goliath, and immediately Saul begins to like this kid. And that's going to initiate the relationship wherewith Saul's going to go to Jesse and say, hey, can he stay with me now? I'm going to make him my armor bearer, this and that. And that is where the rest of this comes from. So we must interpret these verses as summary verses or else we're going to find great contradiction. And we know that that doesn't happen in our uh, Bibles because the Bible is the word of God. So all of that being said, do take note in verse 23 that when the evil spirit afflicted Saul... David played on the harp and the evil spirit departed from him. And this is going to help us as we apply in two distinct ways this morning. And let's get to that application now. Two points as we apply. Point number one, demons have always influenced men and today is no different. Point number two, music is a primary pathway to the spirit of man. Let's talk about these points in turn. Point number one, demons have always influenced men and today is no different. As we read the Word of God and particularly as we read the New Testament, we find a somewhat unique world of demonic influence. Uh, a world in which um, we, don't, we can't relate necessarily in the Western world today, in our society today. The idea of demonic possession is not uncommon in many cultures. I had a roommate from Nigeria when I was in college. And the idea of demonic possession was very, very common for him. 
uh, several other, any place where there's deep pagan roots, uh, where the, the pagan roots are still deeply influential in the culture, uh, you will find demonic possession as, as something that happens quite regularly. And that's likely one of the reasons why the Western world is not dealing with this overt concept of demonic possession or hasn't for the past several hundred years. Because number one, uh, the Western world has been built for the past several hundred years upon a Christian foundation. And because of that Judeo-Christian moral foundation, uh, there has been a general aversion in culture. De- the, the, the demonic realm does not necessarily have that liberty. More, uh, another reason why, and this is also an important reason culturally, is that uh, prior to about the last 15 years or so, we were in the time of history that we would call modernism. We're now in a post-modernistic culture, one that is very susceptible to spiritual things. But before that, we were in a culture of modernism. And modernism is a worldview that rejects anything that's not tangible and provable. And so as such, the concept of demonic possession, whether it was there or not, would have been rejected. By and large, rejected. And um, there would have been completely naturalistic explanations for anything that would have arisen for anything that would have um, shown itself. When a society rejects the spiritual uh, and problems arise within the context of a man's personality, his emotions and his will, that part of us that we would call our spirit, but if they reject the spiritual and there's problems arising in the spirit of a man, there's nowhere to go with that problem except to see it as a problem with the mind, the brain. But when you allow for the spiritual, everything changes in our understanding of of behavior, of personality, of emotion, and of will. And let's put this into an even greater perspective. Over the next several months, we're going to observe King Saul walk a very troubled path. Here in 1 Samuel 16, he's terrified in mind. He's angry, he's paranoid, he's melancholy. In chapter 18, we'll hear men praise David for his victory over Goliath. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And this is going to create a deeply paranoid jealousy, secretly scheming to kill this young man David simply for his reputation. Then in outbursts of random anger, Saul will try to kill David on several occasions. He will end up just completely dropping the the whole rule and the kingdom thing and devote his time to chasing David around the country, attempting to kill him, manipulating others to try to kill him. Everything's about killing David. There will be times where Saul will be in a jealous rage at one moment and then in another moment he'll be calm, he'll be apologetic, he'll almost be passive. If Saul carried those symptoms into a modern-day doctor's office, And he would put on the couch. He would have left that office with a diagnosis of severe depression, paranoid schizophrenia, and bipolar disorder. And he'd have hundreds of dollars worth of drugs in his pocket to stifle the effects of the spiritual problems he has on his mind and body. Now, please don't misunderstand my intentions here. I'm not here to tell you that every problem classified today as a mental illness is demonic in origin or necessarily is explicitly spiritual. I cannot speak to that. Only God knows. And there are without question, however, behavioral or mental issues that are physical in origin. Someone has an accident and they change. We, we see those things. Sometimes something, um, the, the, something happens in the brain or something shuts off or whatever and and emotions and moods change. So we can't say across the board that mental illness is a spiritual thing. But the testimony of Scripture this morning and throughout all of Scripture is that Saul exhibited all the characteristics that today would be classified as a mental illness. And on the authority of God's Word, the Bible states explicitly that these symptoms were an outworking of evil spirits upon him. It was a spiritual issue, not a mental issue. Guilt over sin. We, we know this. We know that the spirit can influence the body. Guilt over sin can, can bring about physical illnesses. It can literally drive people insane. 
resentment and bitterness, which are both spiritual outworkings of unforgiveness, uh, can cripple people's lives. They can cripple their ability to think. They can cripple motivation. It can cripple you physically. It can make you physically ill. Jealousy can consume people and wear away their bodies and their minds. We know this. We know this from history. We know this from experience. And we know that the meteoric rise of the classification of mental illness has been something that has really happened in this last century, and particularly in this last half century. And of course, everybody's saying, well, that we're, we're just finally getting to the point where we can recognize it and diagnose it. And that's, that's nice, but not true. You can read the works of Aristotle and Plato and find that they understood mental illness. They understood the ideas of men going crazy. And even when you think of Aristotle and Plato and that generation, they did divorce these things from a spiritual context. This is not the first time in history that we're dealing with this stuff. But in the last 50 years, what has happened in the United States? Well, since the 60s, prayer has been taken out of schools. Young people have rebelled against their parents en masse, the, the time of the great cultural revolution and, and um, adolescent rebellion. Drug use rose heavily in that time. Music changed dramatically in that time. And as these behaviors began manifesting themselves in culture, we begin seeing more and more and more people mental illness. Is it then unreasonable based upon the testimony of the scriptures and the understanding of the spirit realm for us to connect the two? That as our nation becomes more pagan, that it is opening itself up to the susceptibility of influence to the, the demonic realm? Isn't that what we see in the scriptures? Isn't that what we see in other pagan religions? Isn't that what they do? They open themselves up to the influences of the demonic realm through pagan rituals, which always deal with, which always have two things in common. Music, sexuality. The two things that pagan religions and rituals all share in common. A certain type of music, a certain driven music, and immorality, sexual immorality. So, so this should not throw us that we see mental illness rising at the same time we see the paganizing of our culture. Culture that's rejected the light of God's word, that's rejected the authority of God's word, that has degenerated into reprobation. Psychology calls them all mental illnesses and paints a picture that they are problems with the physical outworking of the electric impulses in the massive tissue that we call the brain and states that these problems cannot be cured, but they can only be managed through the modern wonder of pharmaceuticals, right? Patients are told that they need to learn to love themselves and have good self-esteem and see their problems as not their fault and manage their problems and deal with them as best they can and, and add works in a jail setting and I work in a jail setting and so we deal with this every week. It's hard enough to, to get a guy to understand you. He's hopped up on so many medications when he sits down and says, look, I'm being tormented in my mind. The Bible says that what the modern world is telling us will solve our problems is the exact opposite of what will solve our problems. Rather than loving ourselves, the Bible says we need to recognize ourselves as sinners and that there is nothing lovely in ourself. Now, self-worth de derived directly from the worth that God has for us is one thing. I am worth something to God, therefore I am worth something. It's so much different than I'm special. Self, the the self-esteem movement. The self-esteem movement says you are something in and of yourself. If you put your mind to it, you can do it. There's no limits to you. That's turning man into God. The self-worth concept in Scripture, Psalm 139, I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works and that my soul knoweth right well. I'm not going to question who I am because you made me this way. And I am not going to 
waste the talents you've given to me. I'm going to use them to the best of my abilities because you gave them to me. That's self-worth, not self-esteem. And that's self-worth rooted in God's worth for you, not self-esteem rooted in your own worth for yourself. Rather than casting the blame upon society and culture or our brain and our, our body for our emotional deficiencies, the Scriptures tell us that we need to recognize that God has built into the human body a natural connection to the spiritual concepts of morality and that the closer we align ourselves with God's design for the body, the better our body reacts. And the farther we rebel against how God has designed our spirit and our body to interact, the harder it's going to be on both our body and our spirit to cope. And so as a man throws himself into immorality and throws himself into this realm of sinfulness, self-absorption, he is literally going to be facing the negative physical and spiritual impact of a life that has rejected the way God has asked us to live. And remember, I'm not painting an across-the-board picture here. There's, there's a great number of circumstances and situations that can lead a person into mental, emotional, and physical trouble. But even in those cases where you, would, where, where you would try to mitigate with an understanding of circumstances, much of it is still spiritually based, isn't it? And we need to understand that. Saul's condition reflects little difference when compared to what we would call today mental illness. But his problem was spiritual. It was stemming from the judgment of God upon his refusal to obey. Society, experience, scripture all indicate that there's a spiritual root here. And by the way, what that means, and when I, when I talk to the prisoners, they love this. What that means is if it's a spiritual problem, then there's a solution. You see, I sit across the table from people every week that are being told, you're an alcoholic and there's nothing you can do about it. You're a drug addict and there's nothing you can do about it. You're bipolar and there's nothing you can do about it. You're schizophrenic and there's nothing. Now, it may be that they fried their brains and they'll never recover fully because they fried their brains. But the most blessed thing, and, and by the way, no one's ever argued with me about it, a, a prisoner, when I tell them, no, you can be cured. There, there's, there's freedom. There's solution. If I were to sit down with their treatment leaders, I'd, I'd get arguments. But to sit down with them, all of a sudden they say, wow, I was just waiting for someone to tell me that. They know it because it's a spiritual issue. It's sin. And sin has been conquered. And sin can be conquered. And what a blessing it is to know that in many of these cases where people are struggling with these these difficulties because they're rooted in the spiritual that means there is a solution and that means we have the solution and they might do better sitting in a church pew than a psychiatrist couch so demons have always influenced men and don't think that they aren't doing it today they, it, it, they may have changed their strategy. It may be a little bit under the surface. It may have scientific names or it may uh, be in, in different contexts, but, but it's still happening. Number two, music is a primary pathway to the spirit of man. When Paul, or excuse me, when Saul had this evil spirit come upon him, he began exhibiting the symptoms of this, this troubled spirit, this mental illness, whatever you want to call it. The de facto solution that, that they gave was music. Now, they may have tried some other things first, certainly. Uh, getting sleep, uh, uh, reducing stress, those sorts of things. But at some point they said, let's get a man in here to play music. And this is very insightful for us as we understand what music is and how music influences us. And what it tells us is that God has designed humans to be musical and He has deeply rooted into us a propensity for music and that it has the ability to influence us, spirit, mind, and emotions. And the ironic thing about this is really only, it's only in the Christian realm and people that are trying to justify wrong music where you find any argument here that music has power. You go ask any musician in the, in the, the world, does music influence, does music have power? And they'll say, of course it does. Uh, you, can, you can hear interviews from just 
musicians that say, yeah, we started playing the song and it's like the whole tenor of the audience changed. You can see it. You can see it wave across the audience as this song influences them in this way. There's really no question about the fact that music is powerful, that music is influential. In 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 15, Elisha, the prophet Elisha, stood before King Jehoshaphat to give him the word of the Lord. And Jehoshaphat was asking him to prophesy. And as he was going to prophesy in um, context to the coming battle, notice what Elisha says in verse 15. But now bring me a minstrel. And it came to pass when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. So this is one of the greatest prophets in the Bible, Elisha, and he was being asked to prophesy and in order to put his spirit in the frame of reference to receive the word of the Lord, he asked for music to be played. That's very telling. Why would he ask for music to be played? Well, because somehow he connected the music being played with his ability, the spirit's susceptibility, his, his spirit's susceptibility to the spirit realm. Music is the very essence of the worship of God. Music is the very essence of of worship. Whether it be the true and living God or whether it be a false God, music is the essence of worship. And notice here, let me just explicitly say, I speak not of words in the music. Now when we sing songs, we put words with these songs and those words give us the sound doctrine to go along with the music. But what is really taking that sound doctrine and embedding it is the fact that it's being carried by the instrument of music into our souls. And that is a very influential medium by which you carry a message because the medium itself is influential and powerful. The message that you put with the medium can become even more powerful. But we're talking about the music itself here. It's one of the most powerful forces upon the earth as it relates to influencing the human spirit, emotion, and will. Pagan rituals, as we mentioned before, are full of that driving beat and it makes the human spirit susceptible to influences. Music inevitably comes with associations and so uh, they're deeply connected. Certain associations are deeply connected with certain music styles, aren't they? And you can see a style of music and you can draw out general associations that come with that style. Music can encourage peace. It can encourage rest. It can encourage rebellion. It can encourage sexual immorality and promiscuity. It can encourage confusion. It can encourage anger. In sports, many athletes, many more regularly, use music in order to work in them, to to pump them up, to get the adrenaline flowing, to put them in a frame of mind, to induce a frenzy that pushes their body to peak performances. In mental health, we've already talked about mental illness this morning. Do you know that there's an entire realm of mental health therapy out there called music therapy? Using music to treat mental health issues. Music is used by marching bands and armies to keep large groups of people in tempo and organized. Music is used on the battlefield to inspire soldiers to perform acts that they may not otherwise perform. In Saul's day, they recognized that music had the capacity to drive out an evil spirit and to replace that with peace. And if the reality of the power of music should teach us anything, it is that we need to be extremely careful the kinds of music to which we listen. Music has purpose. It is powerful. It does affect you. God is musical. Satan is musical. The angels are musical. And God has made us musical as the part of the image of God that is in man. We are naturally and inherently musical people baked into us. And you know, it's at its very foundation, music is mathematical. Music is rhythm and patterns. And as such, when you manipulate those rhythms and patterns, you can manipulate the hearer. It can affect your mood. It can affect your concentration. It can affect your peace. It can affect your ability. And so as we look at the world around us, again, we can classify 
certain music with certain, with, the, with certain emotions or feelings. When you think of classical music, there's this piece that's associated with it, this relaxation. If you were to pick up a CD called the most relaxing music in the world, you would not be listening to Jimi Hendrix and Van Halen, right? That, that would not be on the most relaxing music in the world CD. Music, uh, classical music and that type of music as a genre inspires relaxation and peace. As you look at pop music and the big pop music culture today, it's unavoidable to look at pop music and to associate it with sexual immorality. The words, I mean, every pop song is basically a dating song, right? And then when you look at what they're singing when they're up there singing these songs, you have to see the thrust that they're going for in their music. And you could go through, you know, hip-hop and rap is obviously about rebellion, anger, and violence. Uh, it's it's the, the content of their songs, and it's the content of the song because it's the content of the sound. And that's what it fosters. God designed music. God is musical. God designed us to be musical. God designed music for a purpose. Music is meant to foster a spirit of peace and of rest that opens our spirits to Him and that makes us susceptible to worship. This is why we choose the music we do at Legacy Baptist Church. You, you'll never hear your pastor asking you to have in your own home the music standard that we have here. We have chosen high worship because we want to use the music with certainly at, at most of the songs that we sing are doctrinally rich, but the music that is most susceptible to drawing our spirits into the kind of place where you are receptive, not just to the words of the music, but then to the subsequent, subsequent preaching of God's word. And we, the, the hymns of years gone by are time proven as melodies, not all of them, but melodies and, and songs that are very good at drawing the spirit into proper worship. And we do that because we understand the power that music has over us. And the assertions I've made today will be called and are rightly controversial. Certainly there are many here who, due to your own musical experiences and preferences, disagree with me in one form or fashion. But from the Word of God, what we can see and what I don't think anyone could disagree with is that music has power. And if music has power, if it has the capacity, and this is how I describe it, that music has a unique capacity to bypass the man's, a man's intellect and drive straight to the spirit and emotions. Which means when you hear music, you can't put up those normal walls of discernment that maybe you could in other areas because it, it goes directly to the spirit. And as such, we just need to be discerning with music. If David could play the harp and the evil spirit from the Lord could leave him, then we need to understand that the music that we're listening to is doing something to us. Maybe subtle, maybe more to some than others, but it's doing something to us. And parents, above all, I would urge you to understand this concept as it relates to your children. It is quite possible that the music you allow them to listen to, not the words, not the artists, the music, if it is a type of music that fosters those negative spiritual characteristics, could be more influential to their spiritual growth than what they hear on a Sunday from behind the pulpit. Say, well, it has nothing to do with, with religion and church. It could be more influential to their spiritual growth or deficiencies than what they hear behind this pulpit. That's the power of music. Two applications. Interesting, isn't it? You talk about the demonic realm, you talk about music, but they really do have a, a crossover point, don't they? The spiritual realm and the music realm. Unseen influences, unseen powers. The power of evil spirits to influence a man, 
mind, emotion, and will. The power of music to influence men, mind, emotion, and will. And I just pray that as we close this morning, God gives us the discernment to take these principles, just foundational principles learned from the Word of God, understand them and apply them to our own lives in a real and meaningful way, in the way that the Lord would lead us to do, so that we can please Him and simply become everything that He would ask us to be. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I I pray that uh, this morning's message, particularly as it was one of um, where there needed to be clarity and there needed to be precision, I pray that anything that would not have functioned for clarity and precision, uh, much less accuracy, would not have been heard. That your Holy Spirit would take the Word of God and work it in the hearts of each man uh, that, they, that, that the spirit of this message would come forth not to legalistically write off any particular um, direction as far as mental illness or music, but rather to practically, spiritually direct us into that which is best into that which is wise and give us insight so that we can position ourselves to be the best servants of Christ that we can. 